let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his presence to show itself to us, to, for us to be mindful of his presence and understand how we can grow and learn today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege and the means of prayer to actually speak to you and to be quiet and listen as the Holy Spirit replies, the Holy Spirit teaches us. And we come together today in worship to love you, to hold up our, our hearts and our hands in praise and adoration, and but even also to affirm your presence because someone once said that prayer is basically affirming the presence of God. And we thank you for your presence here. We're gathered together to recognize your awesomeness, your sovereign love for us, your grace and the joy that we can have in, in walking with you, God, and seeing Jesus and understanding him as our Savior and Lord and coming to know him as our personal Lord and Savior. Walking with him is the greatest thing in all of life and really what matters truly for time, all time and, and eternity. And we come this morning to look into your word, to let it teach us, to guide us, to confess our sins, and to give you thanks for the joy that you give to us and the connection that we have with you. And in that way, we can come with our supplication and prayers and pray and, and lift up your, your name and lift up your glory and lift up your praise so that you might be magnified and glorified in our lives and in our community. We want more than anything else, Father, to be an essential church. We want the people in this community to recognize us as essential, to recognize us, Father, if we were gone, that they would lose something and they would be worse off for that. And we want to be that kind of essential church, seeking to reach out and to meet the needs of the community, to present to them the gospel and to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Guide us now as we study your word and as we ask you through the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us to be better and faithful believers and to be a better and faithful church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think that there is a secret ingredient for an essential church. A lot of theologians and practitioners have tried to figure out what formula, what program, what idea could be used or is the hallmark or the, the very point of a, of a really growing in a church doing the right things. And they've written about all these different ways. They have this particular program. They have this kind of music. They have this kind of, of activities going on. And no one actually agrees on any one of them as the essential thing for an essential church. But I think that there are a couple of things that the Bible teaches us clearly uh, that never change. One of those, obviously, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're preaching the gospel, you're not adding to it, you're not taking away from it, you're not trying to make it into a certain way. You're just preaching it boldly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that church is going to be an essential church because the gospel speaks to people. People are hurting and they're broken and they're struggling and they need to know that there is a Savior who loved them, who was willing to die on the cross for their sins. And that's the gospel. 
And if we are to stand strong and boldly proclaiming that gospel that we're going to find that our church is going to be an essential church. If it gets involved and embroiled in controversy and pickiness and, and this and that, what color the carpet is, what color the walls are, you know, whether we have drums in the church service or not, then we're missing the point of what it means to be essential because the essential thing of the church is to present the gospel. We do that with another secret ingredient. And unfortunately, it's so secret that church members have forgotten about it sometimes. We even forget about it in our own faith. We even forget about it in our own walk. And I want to simply tell you that if you want to be part of an essential church, if you want to have an essential faith in Jesus Christ, one that really matters, that really changes your life, then you can never forget about this secret. And this secret is simply prayer. Prayer changes things. We believe in the power of prayer. At least we say so. We give lip service to it. But do we actually learn about prayer? I've heard tell of a, of a missionary and others who spend all night in prayer. Churches all time in prayer. There was a church I had an opportunity to be an interim at way back in North Carolina, and a group of ladies prayed on a spot for 10 years every Sunday that God would plant a church there. And you know what he did? But that's a long time to pray, 10 years on one thing, over and over and over again. But prayer is the secret ingredient that the Christian has. Because it's the connection that we have with God. And churches need to remember that, as well as individual Christians. Sometimes we personalize our faith so much that we forget that we're members of the body of Christ here. And we think about our own personal faith so much that we forget about how we are believers together and the needs of the corporate body, the body of believers in Jesus, to work together and serve and seek the face of God and seek his will to know what he wants us to do. That old nagging question is, if God is there, what does he want me to do? Can he tell me what he wants me to do? He wants to communicate with us, and he told his believers, and he tells us to pray, not just as individual believers, but as the corporate church as well. As well. Dr. Um, Gregory Frizzle wrote a book about corporate prayer meetings in churches, and he said powerful church prayer meetings are America's most desperate need. I would say that prayer is America's most desperate need, but it needs to be in the context of the church. If you want your church to grow, to be essential, to be a mighty factor, boldly changing the community around us and having an impact on the lives of not only ourselves, but the people that we meet, then we must pray together. Not just individually, but together in corporate prayer meetings. This is one thing he said, there has never been a massive spiritual awakening, that is revival. There has never been a massive spiritual awakening until churches first return to God in powerful corporate prayer meetings. 
You know, when you pray together, you agree together. You seek God's will together. And there has never been a revival in any sense of the term, whether in, in the nation or in communities or even in churches, when the churches don't pray. There has been revival when the churches have returned to God in powerful corporate prayer. This is what he said as well. A genuine prayer meeting is nothing less than a powerful relationship encounter with God himself. When past generations embraced church prayer meetings as a life-changing relationship with God, they soon experienced a phenomenal outpouring of his presence. If we want Providence Baptist Church to experience an outpouring of the presence of God, then we must learn to pray together. This has been shown over and over and over again that the moving secret of the essential church, the church that makes a difference in its community, has always been prayer. Preaching the gospel and praying. Now, there's a couple other things we have to do. The church actually does pray, and it does worship, and it does evangelize, and it does minister. But I would like to share with you that one of the critical elements of an essential church is to pray together. Now, I'm going to show you this by teaching you from a message or from a passage of Scripture that has been preached on all the time, ages and ages, with so many sermons and so many books. But sometimes the point is missed. And the point is very subtle. But Paul, in writing in Ephesians, I'd like for you to turn there to chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, makes it a point to say something to connect the dots, if you will, in a broader sweeping of the paintbrush about what a Christian church is supposed to be that we miss sometimes. And I want to share that with you this morning. So please turn with me. We're going to talk about the church and prayer. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. You've probably heard about this passage so many, many different times because it's on the whole armor of God. And we always preach on putting on the whole armor of God. But we forget something about that. And I want to show you why Paul is saying this. This is Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 10 through 20. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll come back and divide it into three uh, parts, and we'll talk about it and then finish up this morning in our service. Paul starts, and, and i got to set up the, the, the context. This is the end of the book, okay? This isn't the beginning of the book. So this is the last thing basically, that he's saying to the church at Ephesus. He's putting it within their culture in a real time, in a real space, and he's saying to them, finally. In other words, the last thing I want to tell you. This, this is really what I want to leave you with. He's going to leave them with a plea on his part that they might pray for him, but also he's going to leave them with what really is the bottom line as far as your church is concerned, the, the book of a, a letter to the Ephesians is considered to be a marvelous theology of the church, talking about the church, what the church means. And this is what he finishes up with in verse 10 of chapter 6. 
Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. The old King James says, be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an, ambas an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And may God bless the reading of his word. This text has is, is been around for a long time, and it's no secret that Paul is looking perhaps at the Roman soldier, the most powerful, excellent weapon in any of the empires in the ancient Near East. The Roman Empire extended all along, and he's talking about the armor, the individual armor that a soldier puts on. But we sort of miss the point if we personalize this text just for the individual Christian. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is that Paul is speaking directly to the church, and everything he uses here, imperatives, pronouns, are all plural. This is not an individual text just to take personally. It's, an, it's a text to be joined together as a church to understand. And we understand this imagery, as I'll say in a few minutes, because the Roman army was the greatest in the world, not because of its individual soldiers, although they were fantastic, but because they adopted strategies, military actions, that were based upon the phalanx, the unit, the group of soldiers together. They never sent one soldier out to fight soldier on soldier. They used their army as a unit, a group. Now, each one of them had this kind of protection, but it was designed to be used together. And we're going to talk about how we're called to do that as well as a church. First of all, let's look at the first point, which is to be strong in the Lord. In verse 10, he said, finally, be strong in the Lord, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. In other words, Paul is trying to tell them that they don't go out to do battle in the world by themselves. We Christians aren't expected to go out with our armor and do the lone charge, the lone ranger, and go out and do things. Partly because 
It's not our strength that does it anyway, not by our might, not by our military prowess or wisdom, not by anything we can figure out to do, strategy or ideas, but we serve and we fight, if you will. We go out in the Lord's strength. So the very first thing we need to recognize is that we don't go out by ourselves, we, for ourselves, or in our own power. We go out in the Lord's power. Paul is telling the church, you exist to be the church in the power of God. We exist here as a church to glorify God in his power and his might, not in our own individual ideas, not in our own ways of doing things, but strictly in his leadership. And God leads in a lot of different ways. We may not think that he should lead in this way. We think he should have his strategy, our strategy, but it's his strategy that he wants to follow, and we have to be attuned to that. And he's telling the church in Ephesus to be strong or strengthened by the Lord in the vast strength of the Lord. Now, the Roman army went out and fought the generals, the Caesars, because they had great faith in the strength of the empire, great faith in the resources that they had. We go out to minister, to teach, to share Christ in the strength of God, not in our own strength, and his strength is vast. There is no one stronger than the Lord. There is no power that is able to overcome like the Lord. We really have to recognize the awesome sovereignty of the God who created the world and recognize that that's behind us and that's his strength. And we go out to minister and to serve and to share through him and through it. That's really an important part to recognize because it's not because of our strength or our ideas or our control. It's all because of God and we seek his faith we seek his face, we seek to be strong in him, and we seek to tap into the strength that he has. When we are weak, he's strong. When we're unable, he's able. He's able to carry us through. He's able to help us minister. He's able to strengthen us. He's able to take us through whatever it might be we have to go through because of his vast strength. And you want to be able as a church to get that strength. The strength doesn't come from somebody else who says this is what we need to believe or from somebody else who says this is the program we need to follow. The strength comes from the Lord, and we have to recognize that that's where we need to go. Paul's final word to the church at Ephesus is to get your act together and recognize that strength comes from the Lord and be strengthened by his vast power. The second point that Paul says here, and I'm not trying to um, basically make light of this, verses 11 through 17 are critically important for two reasons. Number one, if you look with me in verse 11, is to tell us that we need to put on this full armor, not a partial armor, but all of the armor of God, so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. See, I read a quote not too long ago that said, we're not fighting the culture. This is a battle between the Lord Jesus and Satan. 
And if we understand that the battle we're in is not just to preserve somebody's culture or somebody's way of life, but the battle that we're in is against sin and against those forces of the devil that are trying to take away the glory of God and who are trying to put us into bondage of sin. The sin that we have is our bondage, and when we came to know Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he forgave us and broke the bondage of sin. And what we need to recognize is that we need to, to see this big battle as it is. He's not saying to the church at Ephesus, now just be nice and good and keep a smiley face. Be happy. Bring everybody in. Don't make waves. He's not saying that if you're the church, everybody's going to like you. If you're the church, you're going to have it easy. He's not saying just sit back and relax and don't do anything, don't create waves. He's saying if you are the church and you're strong in the Lord, you better get ready because it's going to come. Satan is going to begin to attack you. Satan is going to try to create so much turmoil in your midst, between each other, in terms of the people in the community against you, that you're going to need to be equipped because our battle isn't just over against some terrible pagan person. Our battle is deeper than that. He goes on to say, our struggle is not, this is verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, humans, but against the rulers, against the, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness. Those are the rulers of darkness. Those are the cosmic powers, the authorities against evil spiritual forces even in the heavens. That's why you have to take up the full armor of God. Satan's going around trying to shoot fiery darts at us to get us off our point, to get us off of the things that matter for time and eternity. And Paul's saying, you church, you better wake up because you're going to get persecuted. You're going to get dumped on. You're going to have trials and tribulations because you name the name of Jesus. When Jesus was here and they, and they killed him, they, they murdered him, they crucified him on the cross, why do you expect any better? People aren't going to like you because you're a Christian. They're going to dis, dislike you because you're a Christian. They're going to make you feel that you're wrong and that you should be quiet instead of bold, instead of doing battle for the Lord. And churches need to understand that. We always adopt the kinds of programs that say, oh, let's have everybody come in and be happy. But sin rears its ugly head, and we need to know how to handle it and to deal with it. So then he goes on to talk about this, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. There's six items that he talks about adding to your life. And of course, they're kind of allegorical. Truth, the truth of the gospel, the righteousness, having the right relationship with God, peace, the peace that we receive in the Prince of Peace, the faith that we have is strengthened in Jesus Christ, our salvation we have that out there. And of course, the most important one is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. 
that teaches us what the truth is and what matters really for time and eternity. All those are the things we need to get ready with. The enemies are out there, and they're going to do battle with us, and they're going to try and win. So Paul tries to tell the church, and by the way, in, uh, in Be Strong in the Lord, that imperative there is plural, and put on, that imperative is plural too, which means this isn't just directed towards one individual, it's directed to the entire church. And he says, you need all of this. This is what you need in order to function, in order to be successful for what matters for time and eternity. All these things speak about a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. You don't get that unless you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is what's offered to us. This is what satisfies our very souls and our very hearts to be connected with the Savior who gives us all these things. Sometimes we struggle to find peace. Sometimes we struggle to find out what faith is all about. Sometimes we struggle with our own sinful natures. But it is in God's love for us that he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross that these could be solved. And it's in the receiving of the gospel, coming to know Jesus Christ, coming to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that brings us into the family of God. But because we're in the family of God, we've got to be diligent and watchful and careful to put on all these pieces of armor. It's not like we're physically making us up to look like a, a stormtrooper or a Darth Vader or something like that. We're not going to play, you know, was it cosplay, whatever that is. You put, you know, and you go to Star Trek revivals or Star Wars or whatever. We're not doing that physically. And I wouldn't encourage anybody, well, I don't know, maybe we should. And probably there is. Someone's tried to have a church of the Star Trek or something like that where whatever, and they dress up. But that's not what I'm trying to say. This is figurative, but it's meant to teach us something. And what we're being taught is that it's going to be tough out there. And when we leave this building, we're here to worship, but we go out to serve. But it's going to be tough out there. And the toughness is going to come because Satan is out there to trip us up. And we trip up quickly because we take our eyes off of what matters. We take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. We put them back on ourselves and we make ourselves the, self, the center of our universe and we forget that what matters for time and eternity is God who created us and his son Jesus who died on the cross. Having a relationship with Jesus is not a way of being namby-pamby or weak or getting out of things. It's really being strong because if you come to know Christ and you yield your heart to Jesus Christ, then you are connecting with the God who is the strongest, most powerful sovereign of the universe. This is the way he made it possible for us to be part of his family and to be connected to him is by following his way in the way that Jesus did in dying on the cross for our sins. But Paul's not finished there. He wants, he wants the church to realize that they are an army and they've got to stand together. 
and they got to go out with their armor on, and they've got to do battle against things that are out there that aren't just human, they're spiritual powers that are struggling and pushing to make us fall, not to help us be successful, but to make us fall. And they, they talk about it in all kinds of ways to make us think that they have the answer, that this is all that you need to do in life. And they're wrong, and they're lying. And the truth of what really matters for life is found in the gospel and in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about. But listen to me. He didn't end it there. Notice he said, be strong in the Lord. And then he said, put on the whole armor of God. And the last point that he makes, starting in verse 18, is to pray in the Spirit. Again, let me, let me emphasize this. Emphasize this, I'm sorry. This word pray is in the plural. If we are to be strong, plural, if we are to put on the whole armor of God, plural, then we are to pray, plural. And here, Paul is talking about the corporate prayer that the church does. Because you think about an army going out. The army is made up of individuals. And they're all, they have all their armor, they have all their equipment, but they go out and they stand in a line. And they have to trust in that line. They have to hold to that line. They have to know that when the enemy comes at them or anyone else in the line, the line is going to stand. And so there's a camaraderie. There's a power that comes from knowing that you're part of that unit. In fact, our, even modern armies try to encourage that. It's called this breed of corps. The, the power of the band of brothers to fight and to stand their ground. Paul's telling the church to stand your ground. And the way to stand your ground is to pray. And this is what he says down there in verse 18. Pray at all times in the spirit <coughs> with every prayer and request and stay alert with all pers perseverance, means stay alert to pray, stay alert to what's going on with all perseverance and with all intercession for all the saints. Pray for each other. You're going to do battle beside me. I'm praying for you. You're praying for me. We're praying together for the next person in the church together corporately. Praise for the Lord God to move in its midst move in, its, in, in all of the things that we try to do to give God glory and honor, to show God's presence, and to strengthen us, to encourage us. So the Holy Spirit moves in our midst, and what is done is not done by ourselves, but done in the power of God. That's where a church becomes essential, because we're not doing stuff by our own endeavors. We're not trying to find out how we can be a church based on what the world suggests or the, the, the human idea of what church is. If, if it was just getting people to fill in the pews, I always said this, I could put a couple of hundred, a couple of Benjamins underneath the pews at a certain place and then open the door, see how many people come in. You know, do that a couple of times, you're going to have a big group of people coming in, right? But that's not being a church. Being a church is, being, is living the gospel. It's serving God. It's seeking Him. 
being the church is, is praying corporately. This is what he says. Pray at all times in the spirit. This is, and this is true of every prayer and every supplication. You're doing it in the spirit. We can pray outside of the spirit. You know that what that means? That means that's where we start telling God what we want. It's our list of, of things that we want. Right? So God is the great big daddy in the sky who hands out stuff to us. Or another way to put it is, you know, the big uh, uh, the vending machine. We just punch the right buttons and do what we think makes him happy, and then we get whatever we want. It's like uh, Janis Joplin singing, Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Because my friends all have Porsches, right? And I must make amends. I don't know if you ever heard that song. But that's, that's the total idea. God, give me what I want. Do what I want. Make it possible for what I want. But God's not a genie in a bottle so that you can rub it and then give him your three wishes. God wants us to grow in his grace and in his knowledge and to be the church together and a church that has that will always be essential. It will always be vibrant and alive and God will move in their midst and there will be great awakenings of revival and spiritual growth as long as the church prays together. Paul knows this is the case. So he says there at the very end in verse 19, he says, pray also for me that, that I might have boldness. You know, he's writing this, this letter to them from being in prison in, in Rome and he's in chains, and yet he's not saying, just break the chains. The Lord, why don't you send an angel down here with a laser just to, you know, what do they call those things, the laser sword? or Lightsaber, that's it. Come down and get my chains gone, right? And I can, I can move right out and out of this place. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm in chains. I'm an ambassador in chains, but I am coming with the good news from the kingdom of God to tell this kingdom that there is hope and peace in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. And he's saying this to the church at Ephesus so they will pray for him. He wants them to be alive and vibrant and full of corporate prayer so that he can then benefit, the gospel can benefit from his boldness in chains, in Rome, far away from the little church at Ephesus. And he believes that that church at Ephesus can have that kind of, of ministry and power, just like the church at Providence can have that kind of power and ministry all over the world if we come to God in corporate prayer and we come to God in prayer as an individual. Uh, many years ago, I was... Uh, um, going through my dad's library, my, I am, I'm a preacher's kid, I admit it. Not as bad as the deacon's kids, but anyway. <laughs> That's just an inside church joke, right? But I came across the book. Here it is. It's all tattered up. And it's called The Kneeling Christian. Um, my dad read this book. He underlined some things in it. And I read through it. Um, gained a great deal of insight from him. It's by, um, it's called The Kneeling Christian by an Unknown Christian. The author is not listed there. I found out who the author was. You wouldn't know him. His name is Albert Ernest Richardson. And he was born around 1868, and he went on to be a missionary at the turn of the century. Um, 
in Africa and in India. And he was part of a society of evangelists um, in England. And he probably wrote this book somewhere between the 1920s and the 1930s. So that means this book is 100 years old or so, almost, right? And you would say, oh, what does that have to say today to us today? It, it's so old, a different time, a different place, a different culture. Why would it have anything to say to me? We got computers and videos and that virtual reality thing you put on that makes you feel like you're stepping off a cliff, right? We got all that wonderful stuff. Why would it have anything to say to me about being a Christian? Well, the title says the kneeling Christian. Um, this is not going to sound so great because you have to parse it a little bit, but he says we are never so high as when we are on our knees. Now, in our drug culture, high means something different. But what he means is that when we kneel, we can have a spiritual high which far surpasses and far more satisfies than any kind of drug or other, any other inducement that the culture and the world can offer. He says when we get on our knees, we can reach the heights of glory. And that's what he's trying to say. I bring up this book because there's a couple of things he says here, he says in the book that I'd like to end on and share this with you before we finish this morning. He says, has it ever occurred to you that our Lord never gave an unnecessary or an optional command? I think that's pretty true. The Lord never gave us a command that's optional or unimportant. Do we really believe that our Lord never made a promise which he could not or would not fulfill? He claims in this book that our Savior's three great commands for definite action were, of course, do this in remembrance of me, go ye therefore. But he puts up at the very first one, and Jesus said this in the Lord's Prayer. He said, pray ye, pray this way. And then he said in the Lord of Harvest, pray ye the Lord of Harvest. Jesus commanded us to pray. And he said, in fact, this is uh, the unknown Christian, Richardson. He said, in fact, it can easily be shown that all one of success and all failure in the spiritual life and in Christian work is due to defective or insufficient prayer. Unless we pray aright, we cannot live aright or serve aright. I think that's a pretty powerful statement. Unless we pray in the right way, whatever we do in living isn't going to matter, and whatever we try to do in service isn't going to matter. We can love God and love people and serve the world, but if we don't pray aright, we don't get that connection with God right, then it's probably going to lead to failure or at least a lack of success. My last quote from him talks about um, the whole issue of being defeated as a Christian. Uh, spiritually dry. He said, he started off by asking a couple questions. Why are many Christians so often defeated? Because they pray so little. Why are many church workers so often discouraged and disheartened? Because they pray so little. 
Why do most men see so few brought out of darkness to light? That means people getting saved by their ministry. Because they pray so little. Why are not our churches simply on fire for God? Because there is so little real prayer. The Lord Jesus is as powerful today as ever before. The Lord Jesus is as anxious for men to be saved as ever before. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save, but he cannot stretch forth his arm unless we pray more and more, really. We may be assured of this. The secret of all failure is our failure in secret prayer. That's what Richardson said. I think one of the ways we learn to be a church, an essential church, is to learn how to pray. So for the next couple of Sundays, I'm going to do a series on prayer. I'm going to talk about, I'd like to talk about it so we can learn how to pray long and deeply and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about that so that we can be ready and prepared to go do battle. We could have the finest armor in the world, the finest protection in the world, but if we don't have prayer, the armor is useless. If you want to be a deeper Christian, if you want to find out what it means to be a Christian, if you want to find out the awesomeness and the holiness of, of our God and what is the Bible calls the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, then you need to learn how to pray. And I don't mean just say, rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub, yay God. I've actually heard somebody pray that before we ate. I'm talking about really connecting, truly personal, mano a mano, and then group prayer and what it means to grow in the grace and Lord of our Jesus Christ. Oh, I wrote a few things down. I'll tell you real quick those. These are, all right, how do we pray together? Well, start all meetings with prayer. Have prayer meetings where you actually do pray. I've been to those. Develop a prayer chain or group to pray for needs. Then learn how to pray for as long as we need to, a half an hour, an hour, two hours, four hours, 12 hours. Remind you that Jesus prayed all night before he went to the cross. So I'd like to share how we can be an essential church and learn to pray. We're going to have an invitation. It's called Sweet Hour of Prayer. For most Christians, you know, the Pew or whatever this group is, Trust, has done quite a number of surveys. And they say that in a day, the, the, the uh, average Christian maybe makes three to four minutes of prayer. Uh, period. In, in a day. If that. We're going to sing sweet hour of prayer. I'd like it to be sweet hours of prayer. That what you might come from in this church, or let's put it this way, if God sends tarries in sending his son, Jesus Christ, and we lay these old bodies down in the grave, and before we go to the grave and we, we have those bucket lists, you know, we remember the things of our life because they're all oneness, that the one thing that we learn to remember and, and cherish is that we were part of a church that took prayer seriously and had sweet hours of prayer. 
Musicians, you come. Let's stand and sing. If you need to know Christ, if you want to know what it means to know Him, we will share with you what prayer has to do with that. If you are looking for a church home and you feel God calling you here, then we want you to come and join with us. If you just need to come to the front, bow and pray, we want you to do that too. Whatever God may be calling you to do, you stand and sing with us. Sweet hour prayer.